Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wanunu. Uh, this is a special edition of the Mo News Podcast with an interview. We're going to be trying to bring you perspectives from experts, lawmakers, leaders, journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories here in the U.S. and around the world. It has been a big week on Capitol Hill when it comes to gun reform. The major headline over the weekend is that a bipartisan group of senators, 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans, actually have a deal for new measures when it comes to background checks, red flag laws, and mental health. So today, I'm looking forward to speaking with Shannon Watts, the founder of the gun reform group Moms Demand Action. We're hoping to get her response, find out how big a deal this is, and find out what happens next. She has been immersed in this issue for nearly a decade. The mother of five, originally from Zionsville, Indiana, she was a stay-at-home mom until 2012. But within hours of the Sandy Hook school shooting, she went looking for a gun-related equivalent to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and yet found none. So she took to Facebook. At the time, she only had 75 friends and an inactive Twitter handle. But within days, she had a national following and the makings of a grassroots movement. Moms Demand Action now has a chapter in every state in the country, hundreds of thousands of volunteers, and nearly 8 million supporters. Their following now exceeds the membership of the NRA. Good morning, Shannon. Where are you joining us from today? Good morning. I join you from very steamy Houston. Shannon, I'm so grateful uh, that you're able to join us this week because I have to say, as someone who covered Washington and politics for 20 years and Capitol Hill, when I got the news alert over the weekend that there was a deal on gun reform, I had to do a double take or a triple take. I was a bit surprised. And I'm wondering, as someone who's worked on this for a decade now, what your reaction was to the to the deal in the Senate? <sighs> Relief. You know, I, I understand that this is a first step uh, and there will be many more along the journey, but that we have changed the calculus so much on this issue that we could get 10 Republicans and 10 Democrat senators to say that they will sign on to this framework, right? Still framework. We have to put legislative text to that still. And there's, there's a longer path in front of us. We've been down a path many times, but this is the furthest we've ever gone down. And so I just felt relief at the prospect that something would happen at a federal level for the first time in a generation that we could break the log jam and save lives. I mean, that's really what this activism is about. It's about saving lives. And, and so far, what we're seeing in this framework would do that. What? Obviously, the deal, as it's been uh, publicized, doesn't include all the measures the gun uh, reform community was looking for. But I'd love to know from your perspective, what do you believe are the most important parts of the deal, uh, the current framework in the Senate, uh, as far as the things you've been working on and the things you could you believe will have the most amount of impact? First of all, closing what we call the dating partner loophole. So this is a loophole that exists in federal law that does not consider people who have been convicted of misdemeanor abuse, if they're just dating partners, it does not consider them prohibited purchasers. That's because federal law only considered spouses or people you cohabitate with or people you have children with, those are prohibited purchasers, but not dating partners. And here we are, you know, decades later since that law was written, Many women are waiting much longer to get married if they ever marry at all. And yet we know that dating partners are now as likely to be shot and killed by an intimate partner as a spouse. So closing that loophole will save so many lives. About 70 
women are shot and killed by intimate partners every single month in this country. Uh, domestic violence wow. and domestic gun violence in particular is a crisis. And closing that loophole will save countless lives, not just of women, but also children. Um, this framework also lays out a way to make it more difficult for someone who is a danger to themselves or others and is 21 years or younger that wants to buy a long gun. Do I think we should prohibit assault weapons? Yes. Do I think anyone under the age of 21 should have access to an assault weapon? No. But Republicans have agreed to make it harder by sending those people at that age range through ad additional databases and also contacting local law enforcement to see if there are red flags. And almost always there are red flags um, before these kinds of shootings that we saw in, in Buffalo and Uvalde. And then finally, this framework would bolster red flag laws in the states that have them. So 19 states and Washington, D.C. have now passed these laws. They allow friends, family, police, depending on the, the state, even educators, to get a temporary restraining order that would remove the guns from someone who is a danger to themselves or others until police can investigate and to see to determine what the situation is. These laws work. The data shows they work. They, they prevent suicides. They prevent, prevent mass shootings. They prevent domestic gun violence. But the issue is once you pass these laws in a state, you have to actually spend money to implement them and to incentivize police and judges utilizing them. They need to know how they can ask for an order, an extreme risk protection order. So it's not just enough to pass a red flag log. There's implementation that is complex. Exactly. In those cities, in states like in California, San Diego, for example, has done a really amazing job of investing in implementation and incentivizing officials to use these. And they utilize them more, right? It's intuitive. But if, if police don't know about a law, if judges don't know a law about a law, then they're not going to use it. And there have been some experts who said that maybe the judge in Buffalo didn't realize that the state had recently passed a red flag law and that he could have utilized an ex extreme risk protection order in that case. And that could have changed the trajectory of that shooting. So that is part of the framework as well. And, and, and the dollars that they would give these states to implement the red flag laws could also incentivize other states to pass these as well. So all of those things are important measures that we fight for at the state level and would save lives. What do you believe has changed this time around? I mean, you've been at this, uh, for those who uh, aren't as familiar with your background, since the day of the Sandy Hook shootings, so we're nearly a decade, nearly 10 years this December. Um, you've been closely working on these issues. Um, how did we get here, finally? So if we go back to 2012, when the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy happened, it's important to remember that about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. That was a decade of hard work of showing lawmakers, essentially, that if you do the right thing, we'll have your back. If you do the wrong thing, we'll have your job. And that's how social movements work. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to build this army that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a special interest and also um, have relationships with lawmakers. I mean, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day, that, that they know you, that they trust you, and that they want you standing with them as opposed to the gun lobby. So that is a huge seismic shift in American politics. I think the, the other thing that has changed is that 
we initially, our, our theory of change was that Congress was where this work would begin and end, that within weeks or months after the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy, we would pass wholesale federal legislation that would require a background check on every gun sale and that certainly the Senate would act in the wake of this tragedy. Not only did they not act, but several Democrats voted with the NRA. What was the fallout of that vote? The NRA went right back in and instead of rewarding those Democrats who voted with them, they invested in their opponents. So an example would be Mark Pryor in Arkansas. He voted against background checks, a Democratic senator. The NRA went in and invested millions in Tom Cotton's campaign. So another important lesson was learned at that point, which was that with friends like the, the NRA, who needs enemies, right? And Democrats realized, realized they could vote their conscience, that they could have this grassroots, grassroots army that would support them, that they could do the right thing on this issue, and that they could buck the NRA. Republicans didn't learn that lesson. What has also been interesting when you, when you look at our theory of change, I think it was that if we just shined a light on the NRA's corruption and we weakened them, that we would win. And so here we are 10 years later, the NRA is hemorrhaging political power and dollars. They tried to declare bankruptcy last year and failed. And yet their agenda lives on. Why? Because it was embraced by the right wing. And the right wing has used guns as an organizing principle. It's a way to recruit new members. So these are other interest groups? When you refer to the right wing, are you referring to uh, other interest groups or other lobbying um, arms that is leading Republicans to continue? QAnon, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. There was actually a report that came out two weeks ago that said 22% of state Republican lawmakers belong to one of those groups. Those are right wing groups. They are not within the mainstream. They are full of extremists and white supremacists and misogynists. I mean, these are these are dangerous so-called militias, right? That and, and 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 so guns for these groups, again, is an organizing principle now. And it brings people in the door on a whole host of issues. The, this agenda we've seen in state houses that's anti-trans and anti-woman and anti-abortion and pro-gun. So that was something we never predicted. And, and I think those groups have pulled Republicans to the right. And, and, and that's just context for, again, why this agreement on framework is, is pretty profound. Our theory of change is that we have to get all lawmakers on the right side of this issue. And you do that by getting Republicans to vote for it. Why do you feel in this case, at least you've seen at least 10 Republicans, I know four of them are not running for reelection, um, but why is it you feel that they've been able to buck what you feel are those those uh, interest groups on the right in this case, at least so far? Well, as you said, some of them are retiring. Some of them just won election and they're not up again for another six years or so. So they feel like this is a political, politically safe move. Um, they may be being encouraged by other Republicans who know that this is truly an Achilles heel, for, particularly with suburban women and moms. Um, if you look at Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin run, ran and won in the last election, Key is a lifetime NRA member. He refused to talk about guns. He refused to be graded and even fill out the survey by the NRA. He knew that in order to win in Virginia, where we flipped the both chambers of the legislature in 2019 and elected Ralph Northam, he knew he couldn't run on guns and he had to run away from the issue. So I do think Republicans, there's a sense that, you know, if we look like we're allowing children yet again to be slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school, 
there will be consequences for inaction. A, a, a question I'm getting uh, from some of the community and on Instagram and, and newsletter and podcast is, would any of these measures, and this is particularly coming from folks who are disappointed uh, this didn't go as far as they thought, but would any of these measures prevent uh, the next mass shooting? Look, there. first of all, there is or no... Or prevented, sorry, or would have prevented a recent mass shooting. There is no law that is going to prevent all shootings or all types of shootings in this country. There's 400 million guns and very few gun laws. And it's also important to remember that mass shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. It's really violence with handguns that is killing 110 Americans every single day and also wounding hundreds more. And, and it's tearing apart the fabric of our communities. We, we don't look at automobile deaths and say, what one law? will stop all automobile deaths. We're going to do that. And if there isn't one law, we're not going to do anything, right? When you look at how we addressed vehicle fatalities back in the 70s and 80s, uh, we passed speed limit laws, federal and state. Uh, we put rumble strips in the roads. We made car technology safer through airbags. We required seatbelts. Uh, we, we reduced drunk driving deaths. It was a whole host of laws and policies and cultural shifts that saved so many lives. Now, people are still dying in car deaths all the time. We don't say laws don't work, technology doesn't work, cultural change doesn't work. This is just part of creating a safety net that will protect people. When it comes to guns, we haven't even tried trying. And look, we know that most of the mass shooters that we've seen are young men. And when you look at actually gun homicides generally, um, young men between the ages of 18 to 22 commit about 18% of them, and they're only 4% of the population. So keeping guns out of the mm -hmm. hands of people whose prefrontal cortexes aren't developed is also important. And, and, and this framework so far does address that. Not holistically. I wish that it did. I wish it went further. But it is a start. Do you feel like um, you can make progress from here that the um, counter in a year, God forbid, should there be, you know, another mass shooting? It's like, well, you know, we tried passing a law, uh, Shannon, uh, and it doesn't seem to have worked out. So, you know, it's uh, there's not much more we can do from here. Or would it be the reverse? Do you feel that this is the first step and more can be done when the next tragedy happens? Well, it, it's our job to make it the reverse. You know, you asked me what's different now. The other thing that's different since Sandy Hook is that we have a grassroots army that can go toe to toe with the gun lobby and that our organization is doing research and we can point to the causes of gun violence in this country. And we can lead the way in showing that we can't make laws based on emotion or anecdotes, that we have to make it based on data. When we look at states with strong gun laws like California, we see less gun death. When we look at states that have purposefully weakened their gun laws, like Missouri, where I used to live, we see much more gun death. Um, if you look at California, it's 45th in, in the country for gun deaths. In other words, it's at the very bottom, meaning that it has the fewest gun deaths. If you look at Missouri, it's number in five. In per capita? In per exactly. capita or total? Per capita. Okay. And if you look at Missouri, it's, at, it's number five, right? 
So about seven gun deaths per 100,000 people in California, about 12 per 100,000 people in Missouri. And it, it is very clear through research and data that stronger gun laws save lives. So it is on us as a movement to keep pushing for stronger laws at all levels to get Republicans to be on the right side of this issue. And that that is hard work and it takes time. But but clearly we're making progress. For many legislators, it's about job preservation, right? Um, and this whole idea that came out of 94 that uh, you'll lose an election if you vote for uh, gun control measures, or in that case, the assault weapons ban. Um, is there continued evidence for that? And, you know, when you speak to kind of the moderates who are scared of a primary challenge, um, what is the data these days in terms of how worried do they need to be about how voters on the right might vote on guns? Well, when you look at polling among Americans, the vast majority of them support common sense gun laws like a background check on every gun sale. There's huge bipartisan support among state lawmakers for things like red flag laws. Um, I've never met anyone who doesn't think we should disarm domestic abusers. There is some polling that shows that even though Republicans and gun owners also vastly support these measures, at the end of the day, when it comes down to a partisan decision about who to vote for, all of those common sense measures kind of go out the window, right? And they, they vote in a partisan way, um, in sort of a tribal way. And that's what we really need to do is to peel off those people who are in the middle. Um, our own polling shows that often that's women and moms, suburban women and moms. And the suburbs are much more diverse than they used to be. So it's not just white moms, it's black and brown moms too. And when you poll them, it also shows that they overwhelmingly, regardless of political party support, what we are working for. So I think it's our job to make sure in November, which midterm elections are only 150 days away, that this is a priority issue when they go into the polls at all levels of government and up and down the ballot. I want to go uh, to a couple points that you'll often hear from the NRA and others on the right. Um, one, we have a mental health problem in this country. We don't have a gun problem. Well, first of all, I, I always want to point out that people who are mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than perpetrators. And the NRA points its fingers at a whole lot of things. Um, I have a whole list running of what they have blamed mass shootings on, everything from Ritalin to too many exit doors to not enough exit doors to single parenting. Um, and, and it goes on and on. Mental health is, is the main thing that they point fingers at. And if you compare America's mental health rates to other peer nations, we rank about ninth. So in other words, we have very similar rates of mental illness. Yet we have a 26 times gun we have a 26 times higher gun homicide rate. The reason for that we know is easy access to guns. Now, two things can be true at the same time. Mental illness is not what is causing mass shootings, but we also have a mental health crisis, particularly after COVID. So any funding that we can put toward helping people who are mentally ill, um, and that's a lot of Americans right now, that's wonderful. But we shouldn't try to combine the two things because it's too often a, a scapegoat for what the real cause of gun violence is in this country. Okay, n next argument. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. 
Yeah, I, it's nice in theory, but not in practice. I, I think all those people think they're the, the bus driver in the movie Speed. I mean, if you look at police officers and you look at the data, they are able to hit a moving target less than 30% of the time. These are incredibly highly trained people. The idea that a good guy with a gun, and in this country, you know, in 21 states, you don't have to have a background check or training to concealed carry a hidden loaded handgun in public. The idea that they're somehow going to be sharpshooters is asinine. And, and it doesn't work in practice. I mean, we can look at some recent mass shootings where there were armed school resource officers or armed guards um, or even 19 police officers and a border patrol like in Uvalde. And yet they weren't able to stop the gunman. And then the, the other thing that uh, is often said is that everyone in this country already has to go through a background check. What is it that you guys are proposing? Can you explain uh, background checks as they currently stand? Yes. The federal law passed in 1994 required background checks on licensed gun sales. So in other words, you have to be a licensed dealer to sell a gun and then you perform a background check. The The lawmakers at the time never imagined there would be this huge online marketplace where you could buy a gun and arrange to get it in person. And also the NRA fought for the loophole that you wouldn't have to perform a background check at gun gun shows. So the, the law, the federal law, does not include unlicensed sellers in that category of who has to perform a background check. We know that millions of guns are sold each year without a background check because people buy them at gun shows online, even garage sales. Um, and, and if you are a minor or a criminal or a prohibited purchaser, that is how you're going to get a gun. And, and that is such a huge loophole because when we have this sort of Swiss cheese of gun laws in this country, meaning blue states have strong laws and red states have weak laws, we are all only as safe as the closest state with the weakest gun laws. And I, I would use Chicago is an example, right? People are always saying, but what about Chicago? They have, it's a blue state and they've got strong gun laws. It's a 15 minute drive to the border of Indiana, which has some of the loosest gun laws in the country. You just load up your truck with guns, you bring them back and you sell them. And that's what happens all the time in Chicago. So we really do need federal level laws, but in the meantime, we've been passing them state by state. I'm glad you brought up Indiana because that is where uh, you were 10 years ago. as the Sandy Hook shooting happened, how much thought had you given? What was your, a couple questions here. One is, what was your experience with guns prior to Sandy Hook as a, as a neighbor, um, as, a, as a resident of a state like Indiana? Um, and how much thought had you given to the issue prior to Sandy Hook? So my grandfathers were both World War II veterans. They both were gun owners and hunters, and they lived in Indiana and in Illinois. Uh, they handed their guns down to my dad, so we did have guns in our house. I don't think my dad used them. Um, I actually grew up in upstate New York, which is a pretty conservative area of gun owners. And then living in Indiana, my neighbors, many of my neighbors were gun owners. Did I think about the issue of guns? Really only when there was a mass shooting. Um, I was a young mom of five when Columbine happened, and I just I didn't sort of step out of my bubble until, frankly, I was afraid that my own kids weren't safe in their schools. And I should say, you know, as a white woman living in the suburbs, it was long past time that I got engaged and involved in this issue. But when I, I started this Facebook page, which turned into Moms Demand Action, 
Um, I never imagined there was this underbelly of America that existed, that I would um, be threatened, that my children would be threatened, that um, extremists would want to kill me because I simply thought there should be a background check on every gun sale. So you saw this Facebook page the day after the Sandy Hook shooting? Yes. What 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 inspired you and and what did you think it would uh uh what would you what was your hope uh the result would be well like so many people in this country the day of the shooting i was just devastated i was a mess i was sobbing and i i was glued to my television set and i just could not believe this was unfolding in america And then I woke up the next day and I was so angry. I mean, I could barely contain that anger. And I am a child of the 80s. You know, I grew up in the 80s and Mothers Against Drunk Driving was so incredibly influential in the culture. I can remember showing up at my high school one day and there was this crumpled car outside with blood in it. And, you know, it was Mothers Against Drunk Driving had put it there to show us that we shouldn't drink and drive. And this organization, I just felt like had such an impact. And frankly, women and moms generally, (laughs) you know, are sort of the secret sauce of activism, I think. And so I I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. That's what I knew that next day, that I I was going to go online and find this group I could join. And I couldn't find it. I, I found some DC think tanks run by men. I found some city and state organizations mostly run by men. And I just thought, you know, I, I'm going to start this conversation on Facebook, I know how to create a Facebook page. And I I had 75 Facebook friends. (laughs) Um, And I I called the Facebook page One Million Moms for Gun Control, not realizing One Million Moms was like an anti-gay conservative group and not realizing that no one used the phrase gun control outside, you know, the Midwest. Um, and so that's why we changed our name. But it, it, you hear about social media being like lightning in a bottle. This was that. Mm-hmm. I had type A women and moms from all over the country in every city tracking me down. I never imagined I'd be a public figure, right? So my phone number was out there, my email, my home address. And I was just inundated with like, they kept saying, how do I do this where I live? I was like, do what? I, I just started a Facebook page. And, and it was really the genius of these volunteers who said, this is organizing. This isn't just marches or rallies. This is creating a grassroots army that will go toe to toe with the gun lobby where we live. You, you, your 75 Facebook friends have turned into hundreds of thousands of volunteers, chapters in every state and 8 million supporters. Shannon, you, you wrote a book, um, uh, Fight Like a Mother. And there's a quote in there uh, that struck me where you write, uh, you may not see yourself as an agent of change yet. After all, you're probably plenty busy taking care of your kids and making a living. You might think you don't have the time, energy, or guts to be an activist. Stop that. You have so much potential to affect change, more than you know. What would Shannon, the day before Sandy Hook, have said in response to that quote? And and how did you get there? (laughs) I never imagined I'd be an activist. I never imagined I would be involved in the issue of gun safety. But what I have learned over a decade is that every voice matters, every vote matters, and every minute you spend on activism matters. Uh, One of our brilliant volunteers coined the idea of spending an hour each day on activism as naptivism. So when their kids are taking a nap, they can send a tweet, they can make a phone call, they can send a text. And it really does add up. 
I think so many people get frustrated by the system because it's built around incrementalism. I wish we could have had wholesale change the day after the Sandy Hook school shooting a decade ago. I thought we would. But it's incrementalism. We live in an era of uh, immediate gratification, Shannon, don't we? We do. We do. And and, and, and yeah. look, I, I wish that were the case because this is about saving lives and, and every minute matters. But when the system is set up for incrementalism, you have to be pragmatic and you have to recognize that will eventually lead to a revolution. And I do think women and moms in particular are cut out for the unglamorous heavy lifting of grassroots activism, like showing up at every gun bill hearing, bringing cookies to your lawmakers and creating relationships with them and, and never giving up. You know, I, I heard someone equate America being sick right now to a sick child. And if your kid has a fever and they're up all night, it can be really exhausting. And you can think, you know, I, I need sleep. I need a break. But at the end of the day, you're not going to give up. This is your kid. You're going to hang in there until that kid is better. And I do think there's something to be said for that determination. It goes hand in hand with being an amazing activist. So there's um, a whole group on the left that wants change. There's a, a certain percentage of the right that says, you know, don't take away my guns no matter what. I want nothing changed. How what have you found to be the most effective message to the middle? Uh, and I say like center right. I believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, I might be a gun owner. Um, you know, uh, I, I put my hands up. This is just the situation we got to deal with in this country. And I don't want the government interfering with my, you know, Second Amendment rights. What, what messaging have you found most effective to that group? You know, I, I think there is this belief that this is a polarizing issue in this country. But when you actually have one-on-one -on -one conversations, you realize you're on the same page. You know, our organization is an anti-gun. We're not against the Second Amendment. Many volunteers are gun owners or their partners are our gun owners. This is about restoring the responsibilities that should go along with gun rights. And I think responsible gun owners are outraged by what is happening in this country because it, it does make them look bad, right? It paints everyone with this brush of extremism or, or danger. And I have seen so many people that are in that group that you're talking about right now as you define the moderate right. Um, you know, people like Bill Crystal and David Frum, Essie Cup. She used to be an NRA spokeswoman. She has now firmly distanced herself from the NRA and is in support of stronger gun safety laws. So you can look at a lot of Republicans who have said, you know what, I part ways with the party on this issue. And, and that could also be what's influencing Republicans. I mean, in Texas, many high profile Republican donors put an ad in the paper saying, we expect our senators to act on this issue. I mean, those are Republican donors. That sends a strong message. At, at the same time, we have this deal in Washington. Uh, I saw the headline out of Ohio this week uh, in regards to arming teachers. Um, yep. There's been a whole bunch of states that have, have loosened their laws. Um, it does seem like, you know, you're fighting a multi, multi, multi front battle here in multiple state legislators. Um, give me a sense of the state of play as far as you're concerned. I, I, you know, you seem to um, be optimistic about what's happening in Washington. But on a state level, I'll hear from people who are, you know, who might be concerned about some of the laws they see being passed in their states. How are you managing uh, your efforts across 50 state houses? Well, thankfully, we have this grassroots army, and they show up in every single state, um, regardless of, of whether it's red or blue. And 
not only have we now passed background checks in 20 states and disarmed domestic abusers in 30 and passed red flag laws in 19 and secure storage and police accountability bills and on and on and on, right? We have, we have changed the face of this nation in terms of uh, the bills that we've passed. Colorado is a completely different state, Nevada, Washington. But we've also stopped the NRA's agenda 90% of time, the time in state houses every year for the last six years. That is really important to remember that defense is such an important part of this because these are bills that would just sail through state houses if it weren't for our volunteers showing up in red shirts and saying, not in my community, you won't. And has the NRA advanced their agenda in some red states? Yes, but we have kept them in, at bay. Um, and, and it isn't just state houses. We can do this work in city councils. Just last week, we passed resolutions through five different city councils that um, prohibit ghost guns or prohibit open carry or prohibit guns in sensitive places. Walnut Creek, California, just passed a secure storage bill. So this work can be done in school boards, city councils, state houses, boardrooms. I think it is hyper-local work that builds the momentum on the ground that will eventually point the right president and the right Congress in the right direction. I am very hopeful we're going to take this step in the Senate, but that doesn't mean the work ends. We're going to show up uh, all over the place. And, and, and that includes the midterm elections. You know, we have over 100 of, of our own volunteers, 120 now, uh, and gun violence survivors from our organization who are running for office up and down the ballot. Two members of Congress are Moms Demand Action volunteers. That is another way to ensure that we have a seat at the table. Do uh, Are any of your volunteers running uh, with an R after their name as well? I mean, this, this could be a year where you see a Republican landslide in a bunch of places. That's a great question, and I, I, I'm not sure if that's the case, but I will tell you that this recent House vote was really heartening because the House voted on a different slew of, of gun safety legislation um, as they waited for the Senate to act, and more Republicans voted for that than ever before. So that, that to me, shows progress. It's a positive sign, and we do have Republicans who want our gun sense candidate distinction every single year, and that number increases, too. So again, our theory of change is we want every single lawmaker on the right side of this issue, just like you know, many have been on marriage equality. Politics is cyclical and it goes back and forth. But you know, we got to the point where Republicans and Democrats, for the most part, agree that everyone should have the right to marry. That's moving backward in some states along with abortion rights and, and, and a whole host of other things. But we want to get to that point on the issue of gun safety, too. Um, one um, concept I was struck by, and I'd love for you to explain it, is the idea of losing forward um, that uh, you you stress to your organizers. Explain what losing forward is. You know, you don't get involved in gun violence prevention and not think you're going to lose some battles, right? We're taking on the most wealthy, powerful, special interests that's ever existed. And I'm thankful that we win more than we lose, but we've lost plenty along the way. It would be really easy, for example, we were talking about the Manchin-Toomey vote earlier when we lost by a handful of votes in the Senate in the spring of 2013. This is, yeah, this is 10 years ago. Exactly. That was the bill that would have closed the background check loophole in honor of the Sandy Hook school shooting. If we, if we had just looked at that loss and said, you know what, America's not ready for this, I guess we should pack up and go home, we wouldn't have exist today. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be where we are with the Senate right now. The, the lesson we learned from that loss was that we needed to pivot and do this work locally, state houses, boardrooms, city councils. That was losing forward. You know, I look at a state like Arkansas, 
And I would go to visit our volunteers in Arkansas the first couple of years. It would be the same handful of people. We weren't really growing there. I'm not sure people thought gun safety was a great way to spend their activist energy in the state. And what happened was a lawmaker put a bill forward that would require guns on college campuses, would require them to allow them on college campuses, even tailgates where alcohol is served, right? I mean, the most absurd idea you've ever heard, give you know guns to uh, college-age kids and, and in the mix of alcohol. And it so outraged women and moms across the state that our organization grew exponentially. And we were so strong immediately that we could go in and carve out an exemption so that guns were not allowed inside stadiums. And then the next year, two of our volunteers ran for office. They both won. One was a, a professor at the University of Arkansas, and the other one was a retired nurse who put the who, who ran against the guy that put the guns on campus bill forward. She beat him by 12 points. <laughs> and then the year after that, we mm-hmm. stopped stand your ground twice, even though there was a Republican supermajority in the Arkansas State House. So that's losing forward. If we hadn't had that initial loss of allowing guns on campus, we never would have grown. We never would have elected our own volunteers to office. And, and we couldn't have stopped those dangerous bills. Now, we've had losses since then in Arkansas, but, but it is a theory of change. And, it, and, and our theory is also, our motto is also keep going. We, we are going to always keep moving forward. We're always going to be advancing the ball and we're never going to give up. And, and we just have to learn from losses and, and win the next time. For uh, people, you know, I heard a lot of this out, out of Buffalo and Uvalde, uh, you know, just depression, um, you know, uh, and, and people who don't even know where to turn. They want to do something, uh, but they're also busy in their own lives. They're dealing with increasing gas prices and the deal with the economy and their own children and everything else going on in their lives. But they want to affect what is happening at a state level and federal level. What are the first steps, uh, suggestions, tips you give folks who, who do want to have an impact in the free spare moments that they have? Well, first of all, you can text the word BOLD to 64433. No matter where you live, we need you to call your senator and let them know that this is a priority issue for you and you expect them to act and that there will be consequences for inaction. I would also suggest that you join a chapter of Moms Demand Action or Students Demand Action where you live. We aren't just moms, we're mothers and others now. Lots of men and dads and non-moms wear our shirts. Um, And you can join us by texting the word READY to 64433. I would also suggest you get educated about the people who represent you or who are running for office in this next election. Are they gun sense candidates? Where do they stand on this issue? Do they have an A rating from the NRA or an F? And if you want to learn more about your specific candidates, you can go to gunsensecandidate.org and learn more about how your candidates have voted on this issue and and whether they'll align themselves with the NRA. I would say those are the top three things that that we should be doing. Um, In the coming weeks here, we're going to have a Supreme Court decision on uh, a New York case. People seeking licenses to carry a concealed handgun need to show proper cause defined as a special need uh, for self-protection. And the sense is, given the 6-3 majority on the court, that they might overturn this. What, what would be the impact if the Supreme Court overturns the New York law? So this is a case brought by the NRA New York affiliate to attempt to weaken the permitting system there. 
it's a very strong permitting system. And a big reason for that is because of New York City, right? It would be dangerous to have guns everywhere in the city. We saw a recent shooting on the subway. That said, Judge Justice Alito during the arguments implied that he wouldn't have an issue with guns on the subway. So if this court case goes the way the Supreme, that, that the NRA wants it to, um, it will weaken not just the permitting system in New York, but in seven other states with a similar system. That means about a quarter of all Americans will be impacted. It, it would be such a misguided decision, and it would show how extreme the court is in this country. However, all hope is not lost. We can then go into the states, which are blue states for the most part, and we can strengthen laws through the state legislature. That includes permitting, that includes training to have a handgun, um, but also we can do cultural things like signage campaigns. You know, we don't want to live in a country where you have to go through metal detectors to go anywhere. And that's exactly what the gun lobby wants. So that is all the more reason, you know, if this Supreme Court case turns out um, to to be what the NRA wants, then it's all the more reason that we all get involved, especially in blue states where this will be impactful. So uh, should the court overturn uh, the law you have uh, alternative laws in mind that you feel uh, could could be passed in these state capitals. Yes, we always have a plan. So we are already planning for um, the worst case scenario, hoping for the best. Uh, but we will be immediately deploying our grassroots army to make sure that we address any fallout from the Supreme Court decision. Shannon, what's the biggest personal lesson you've learned? Uh, and, you know, it might be hard to just choose one. As you've become uh, an advocate these these past ten years, an activist, uh, built this grassroots army. What, what have you learned about yourself uh, and this country? <laughs> you know, I am just so motivated by the volunteers who have been impacted by gun violence. It's truly heroic to me that you would have experienced this type of loss and still be able to advocate to save the lives of perfect strangers. Um, I'm not a survivor of gun violence, and I do this work every day in their honor. Um, and so what I have learned is that, you know, I was just an average lady from Indiana who was outraged. I wrote the book Fight Like a Mother for exactly that reason. I wanted to put down a paper how we did this together, how all of these strangers across the country came together and started the largest grassroots movement in the country, how women can be impactful and empowered. I think so often middle-aged women in this country are invisible and ignored, especially black and brown middle-aged women. And so I guess the lesson I've learned is that cynicism is an excuse too often for inaction. It's important to be hopeful, but even more important that, than that, it is important to fight for the outcome that you want and that you really can make a difference and you can change the trajectory of the nation if you band together with like-minded people. Inspiring words to uh, end on. Shannon, I appreciate you uh, joining me. Uh, Good luck um, as you continue to travel the country. Um, And I should uh, conclude by asking, how are you uh, impacting or folks who want to ensure uh, this legislation passes the U.S. Senate and gets to President Biden's desk? uh, What will you be doing and what do they need to be doing? 
We are already showing up in district at our senators' offices. Uh, I just saw that our Moms Demand Action volunteers are, are in Alaska and Utah and Louisiana, every state uh, dropping off letters and petitions and asking for in-district meetings. We're also asking t- for calls into your senators, no matter what political party they represent. You can text the word BOLD to 64433. Um, but we are going to be spending the next week really pushing um, on the senators and on this administration to make sure that the, the language and the text put this to this framework is invested in programs that are proven to save lives. That is the, the ideal outcome of this. You know, we are not playing a political game. We are activists who want to save lives. Those people who have been impacted by this issue, this crisis in this country are not political pawns. And if we can pass something at a federal level that will save lives, we've got to do it. So it's all hands on deck. And I would encourage everyone listening to get off the sidelines and get involved. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, your work with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks again to Shannon Watts for her insight. You can read more from our conversation in the Mo News newsletter at monews.bulletin.com. And of course, follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H for all of your news needs. We plan to continue to bring you regular conversations with newsmakers, experts, leaders, and journalists involved in the biggest stories here in the U.S. and abroad. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.